Well, good evening once again. And uh, tonight we are starting a new book. So turn to the book of Job. <laughs> Helene, did you not send the memo? No, no. Turn to the book of Genesis. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Sometimes I feel like Job. That's what it was. All right. I get that straight. Book of Genesis. It's been a long time since I taught the book of Genesis. You say, how long? Well, the last time I taught it, scientists were saying that the earth was 5 billion years old. Last time I heard, they're saying it's 12 billion years old. It's, a lot of, it's been a long time, so. All right. The word Genesis comes from a Greek word that means origin or beginning. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the book is called Versheth, which means in the beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In Genesis, we have recorded for us the beginning of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. In the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of human life and animal life and plant life upon the earth. In Genesis, we see the beginning of marriage, family, nations, culture, language, and government. In Genesis, we not only see the beginning of life, but we also see the beginning of death, which came about through the beginning of sin, which set in motion the beginning of God's plan of redemption for mankind. In fact, the um, major theme of the Bible is redemption. That's the major doctrine theme of the Bible. Of course, there are many other major doctrines as well, and every one of them gets their start in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Uh, that's why to refute Genesis is to compromise the rest of Scripture. Since the book of Genesis is the foundation for the rest of God's Word, therefore, to refute it, uh, to attack it, you're really attacking all of God's Word. And this is why the devil, I believe, hates this book so much and is trying so hard to undermine its credibility and authority today. Because as we learned when we studied uh, with Ken Ham in his Foundations series, he quoted Psalm 11, verse 3, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And really, the foundation of our Judeo-Christianity is the book of Genesis, in particular, the first 11 chapters. And by the way, the book of Genesis could be divided into two main sections, the human race and the chosen race. The human race is embodied in chapters 1 through 11. And in these chapters, the subjects are the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. It gives us kind of an overview of the human race. But then starting in chapter 12 and running through the end of the book, chapter 50, then God begins to focus on the chosen race. And he does so by zeroing in on four main characters, not only in Genesis, but of course these are main characters to our faith in what God did in their lives. But the four main characters that we read about then starting in chapter 12 is, are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now again, as I've already said, the book of Genesis not only records for us the beginning of life on planet Earth, it also records for us the beginning of death. Death came to the earth through the sin of one man, Adam. This then put into operation God's plan of redemption for mankind through the second Adam, God's Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me read to you what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Paul said, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. 
Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater in God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who would receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So the first Adam blew it for all of us. The last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, he's called the last Adam because he is the one who would fix all the mess and right all the wrongs the first Adam led us all into. And it wasn't just his fault, obviously. Yes, sin came into the world through Adam. But we prove we are descendants of Adam every day in the way we live and sin and disobey God. So there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will remove all sin from the earth. When we get our glorified bodies, we will be as perfect outwardly as we are now inwardly as believers. And someday we're going to be relocated to an environment where there will be no more sin. Sin will be removed from the human race and cast into the lake of fire. And we will live in a glorious new place, the new Jerusalem, for all eternity. All this was made possible through the Redeemer that God would send. Now here's the thing. As we stand in Genesis, the Redeemer would not come to the earth for another 4,000 years. Another 4,000 years after the fall would Jesus come to the earth. But see, God didn't start his plan then. He started his plan way before Jesus would be born. So 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, right here in the book of Genesis, God began his plan of redemption for the human race. How? By choosing one man whom he would use to start a new race upon the earth, a chosen people through which Messiah would be someday born. That man's name, of course, was Abram, who God later named Abraham. And so after God gives us the first 11 chapters in Genesis, which deals with the creation, the fall, the flood, the confounding of language, which caused man to be scattered across the face of the earth, which brought about nations and cultures, in the midst of all this confusion and chaos, God called a man named Abram to separate himself from his family, his friends, his possessions, his, his homeland, to follow God on a journey of faith, not knowing where he was going initially, but God promising that when he finally got to the place where God was leading him, every place the sole of his foot would step, God had given it to him and his descendants for a perpetual possession by covenant. Quite a story, as we're going to see as we study the life of Abraham. And so the second main section of Genesis begins. After the chaos and confusion of the first 11 chapters, then God begins to focus on Abraham and his descendants as the instrument of his divine grace to this fallen world, a chosen people, as I said, through whom he would someday bring the promised Messiah and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, long before the deliverer of mankind would be born, God raised up a forerunner, a deliverer of God's chosen people, Israel. And, of course, his name was Moses. And Moses would be used by God to deliver Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, even as Jesus would someday deliver mankind out of the bondage of sin and death. Now, guys, it's fairly well accepted. In fact, I think it's unanimous, all right, among Jewish and conservative Christian scholars that Moses was the writer of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah. Of course, liberal scholars have tried to say Moses wasn't the author of these five books. 
Now, I, I meant to say the writer of these five books. Who's the author? Okay, the Holy Spirit. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture has been given to man through the Holy Spirit who used people like Moses and, and David and Daniel and others to write down Holy Scripture on cuneiform tablets or parchments and so on. But those were the originals where God moved in the hearts of these men and they became the instruments through which the Holy Spirit then used to record the Word of God that we have in our laps. But as far as the Jewish people and conservative Christian scholars, it's pretty much unanimous that we believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, liberal scholars, as I said, attribute the first five books of the Bible to four different sources, which they represent with the letters J, E, P, and D. Now, I'm not going to even waste your time on all of that. And I'll tell you why. It's because the Lord Jesus said the Pentateuch was written by Moses, and you know what? That's good enough for me. All right? Now, understand that even though Moses wrote the Pentateuch, he was only personally involved with the last four books of it, Exodus through Deuteronomy. Genesis is actually a compilation of written documents and oral traditions that happened long before Moses came on the scene. These were written, collected, and passed down from family to family in the form of historical records and family genealogies that eventually came into the possession of Noah. These documents were preserved through the flood, as Noah then, and each family after him, added to them 11 generations of documents in all that were collected and eventually given to Moses, who compiled and edited them into the book of Genesis, of course, all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the big debate that has raged among liberals for centuries, but of late, I'm sorry to say, that started to affect evangelicals is this. Can we take the book of Genesis literally? And really, the heart of the debate is the first three chapters. Okay? The first three chapters is really where the battle really rages. But the whole book has been called into question for centuries by liberal scholars. But now today, even some conservative evangelicals are starting to wonder, can we trust all that's written in the book of Genesis as being historical fact? You see, for so many centuries... Again, liberals debated as to whether or not Adam and Eve were real people. Is there a literal devil, they debated, who took the form of a serpent and caused Adam and Eve to sin in a paradise setting called the Garden of Eden? Was all that literal? Liberals say no, not at all. They claim that this was nothing more than an allegory, a literary device used by the writer to explain evil in the world, but you can't take it literally. They contend that the whole creation account the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind, including Satan, Noah and the flood, these are all myths and fables, they say, designed to teach spiritual truths, but were not a matter of historical record. They were not historical events, what the liberals are telling us. Fortunately, Jesus comes to our rescue once again. You see, Jesus took all of these as historical fact and taught them as such. He talked about the creation of God, not the Big Bang, okay? He talked about the creation of God. He mentioned Adam, Eve, and Noah by name as historical figures. Now the skeptics say, wait a minute. Just because he called them by name doesn't mean he wasn't using allegory. Well, here's the problem with that. Jesus taught using allegories all the time. They're called parables. 
But whenever Jesus taught a parable, he never used names. He always said, a man went out to sow seed in his field. Or a certain king went on a journey. That kind of thing. Whenever he used historical events to teach from, that's when he used names. For example, and I'll have you turn to these. Luke chapter 17. I mean, you need to know this, guys, because we all believe, we have a high view of Scripture. We believe all Scripture was inspired by God. We believe it's all truth. It's all accurate, right? But there's a lot of people who do not believe, and you'll get this about Genesis. Oh, you can't take it literally. Are you kidding me? Well, what about Adam and Eve and Noah? Oh, that was, no, that's just allegories. Well, you know what? Jesus did not teach it that way. In fact, in Luke 17, starting in verse 26, he said, the Lord Jesus said, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, the people of this world, they ate back then. They drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So again, he uses the name Noah there and talks about a literal flood. All right, Jesus Christ believed the flood was literal. And if he's not speaking literally, tell me what allegorical value we're getting from this. What is the lesson we're learning if it's just allegory? Turn to Matthew chapter 12. And let's pick it up in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, this is Jesus talking again, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus believed that Noah was, excuse me, that Jonah was a literal person and he was swallowed by a literal fish. Now there are those that say, you know, that's impossible. For a man to live for three days and nights in the belly of a fish and not die. Who says he didn't die? read the book of Jonah, sounds like he went down to Sheol, which means he died. And God resurrected him as he was regurgitated up onto the shores that led to Nineveh. I mean, if he's, Jesus is using Jonah as a type of his own resurrection, very plausible that Jonah died in the whale. And if he didn't, isn't God capable of keeping somebody alive? Okay. God prepared this great fish that swallowed Jonah. Uh, I'm sure God could have rigged it so that Jonah stayed alive. Okay, God's God, all right? I'll give you one more, and I throw this one out because the JWs like to use this to tell you this is a parable because they don't believe in the eternality of hell. They believe once you're thrown into hell, as a person, you are vaporized, burned up, annihilated, go out of existence. So this one place in Luke 16 really bothers them. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Picking up in Luke 16, verse 20, where Jesus said there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now again, he names this man, okay? Full of sores, who was laid at his gate, the gate of the rich man, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And, and being in torments in Hades, now Hades, guys, is not hell. Hades is a temporary place of incarceration in the center of the earth where all unbelievers go until the great white throne judgment. 
and then they are cast into hell, which is the lake of fire in the outer darkness. But right now, uh, this rich man died. He was an unbeliever, obviously. Lazarus was taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom because at this point, there are, well, there are still two compartments in the center of the earth. One is a place of torment where people, unbelievers still go until the great white throne judgment. And the other side was a place of paradise called Abraham's bosom where believers went. They were separated by a giant chasm or gulf like the Grand Canyon. So one could not cross over to the other side and vice versa. You see, before Jesus died on the cross, their sins were not paid for. Therefore, they couldn't go to heaven. So they were kept in this prison, but it was a paradise where they were comforted. And you remember how that Paul says when Jesus died on the cross before he ascended back to the Father, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and set the captives free. Now Paul says to be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. So that paradise side called Abraham's bosom is empty, although it's still there. But the other side for unbelievers is still very much active. Okay, so verse 23, And being in torments in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now let you finish the story on your own. The point I'm making is that the JWs will tell you, well, this is a parable. See, they can't have this be a real story about real people because they're not annihilated when they go into Hades. They're tormented, all right? I mean, the rich man was, was very much conscious of his surroundings and the torment he was going through, right? But here's what I always tell them. No, nowhere did Jesus ever name names in a parable. By naming a name here, he's telling us this is a real story about real people, about a real place called Hades. And if this is an allegory, explain to me what lesson we are supposed to learn from it. It's a real story. It's a historical event. Again, whenever Jesus used the name in a story he was teaching, it signified it was not an allegory, but a literal historical person and event he was talking about. Besides, guys, speaking of Adam again, if Adam wasn't a real person, what's his name doing in the real genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can read about that in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. I mean, if he was just an allegorical figure, how did he make his way into a real genealogy? Because those genealogies were not an allegory. That were your descendants, okay? Now, again, as we've already seen, the Apostle Paul mentions Adam in Romans 5, telling us that death came into the world through Adam. If Adam was only an allegorical figure, then death did not come into the world through Adam's sin, because there was no Adam to sin which means we wouldn't need a redeemer. And also means Paul got it wrong because he apparently believed Adam was a real person who blew it for the whole human race, but now God sent the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay our debt, to redeem us out of that curse of hell, to give us eternal life. So all that's real, and so obviously it had a real beginning. Adam was a real person who really did sin. Bottom line, guys, Genesis is a book of history, not allegory. There are books that are more poetic, where God uses more allegories to communicate spiritual truths. 
But Genesis is an historical record. It's not a book of allegories. Now, I want you to know this, and you probably do, but let me just say it. Everything lost in Genesis is regained in Revelation. Everything lost in Genesis is regained in Revelation. In Genesis, paradise is lost. In Revelation, paradise is regained. Genesis records man starting in a paradise on earth. The book of Revelation ends with redeemed mankind living in paradise in heaven. In fact, as one author said, what begins in Genesis is, is developed throughout the Bible and then finds its fulfillment in the book of Revelation, as you can see from this summary. And I'll give you what he wrote here. In Genesis, we see the first heaven and earth. Revelation, we see the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis, we see the first garden and the tree of life guarded. In Revelation, we see the garden city, New Jerusalem, and the tree of life available. In Genesis, we see the first marriage. Revelation, the last marriage, the marriage of the Lamb. In Genesis, Satan tempts Eve to sin. In Revelation, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Hip, hip, hooray. In Genesis, death enters the scene. In Revelation, we read, no more death. In Genesis, Babylon is built, the mother of all false religions. In Revelation, Babylon is destroyed. And finally, in Genesis, the Redeemer is promised, but in Revelation, the Redeemer reigns. So everything that man messed up in Genesis, Jesus Christ puts right in Revelation, which culminates in eternity with us being with him forever in a place called New Jerusalem, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, and especially no more death. All right, didn't think we'd make it, did you? How about verse 1? <laughs> Genesis 1, verse 1. Here's a lot here, can I tell you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, don't be so quick to move on, all right? <laughs> well, you think about that for a second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look, the first verse in the Bible, in the first verse in the Bible, we have the basis for a theistic worldview, that everything in the natural realm was created by a supernatural deity. This stands, guys, in direct opposition to another very popular worldview. In fact, it is the dominant worldview in the world today, and that is the naturalistic worldview, which says that in the beginning, and I'm just going to paraphrase what it's really saying. They don't put it this way. Those that hold to a, a naturalistic worldview don't. Let me just put it my, in my terms. They believe in the beginning nothing produced everything all by itself. That's what you got, okay? In the beginning, God created, or the naturalistic worldview, in the beginning, nothing created everything all by itself, or produced everything all by itself. Naturalism believes that everything in the universe came about by natural processes without any supernatural input. One author says, Naturalism has now replaced Christianity as the main religion of the Western world. And evolution has become naturalism's principal dogma. And that is very true. Look, 
I don't think anything shows the, the contrast in these two worldviews like this. The Bible says that God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory, Psalm 8, verse 5. But modern man has rejected the Creator and has embraced evolution, which teaches that man evolved a little higher than the apes. So think about that. The Bible says man was created by God a little lower than the angels. Scientists or evolutionists today say, no, man evolved a little higher than the apes. Now, depending on which of those you embrace, it's going to have some very large ramifications on a lot of things in your life, okay? Of course, evolution is amoral. It's amoral. So by rejecting the God of the Bible, who is a moral God, and replacing him with the God of naturalism, man is free then to do whatever he wants to do. He's done away with God. If you want to live your life with impunity, if you don't want uh, a God, uh, you know, looking over your shoulder and giving you all that guilt for doing things that he says you can't do, if you just want to live your life any way you want and do your own thing and so on without any guilt, then you got to do, you got to get rid of God. And that's what people have done today. They have gotten rid of God. Why are more and more people today becoming atheists? Well, Paul tells us why in Romans chapter 1. Why don't you turn there? You all know this section, but let me read it, okay? Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, the truth of God, in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, see, the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. Don't these scientists all profess to be very wise? If you disagree with them, if you don't believe in naturalism or evolution, you are just a bumbling idiot, they think. Professing to be wise, they became fools, Paul said, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And we are living this in our culture as we speak. We are living in a time when more and more people, and the Bible says that the closer we got to Jesus' return, evil men would grow worse and worse. They would be lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, and yet they would still have a form of God churchgoers and you know claiming to believe in god but their lifestyle reflects a different reality but why do they reject god god has clearly showed himself in the creation and we're going to see that next week god has clearly shown that he exists to the creation that's the outward testimony of course the inward testimony of god's existence is our conscience romans 2 where did this innate understanding of right and wrong come from 
We all know innately what's right and wrong. Why? How is that? Because God created us in his image and wrote his laws in our hearts. It testifies to the reality that there is a God, a supreme being, who made us. But man wants to live unrighteously. Even though he knows God exists in his heart of hearts, he knows it. So what does he do? He suppresses that truth in his desire to live unrighteously. And the best way to do that is to just say God doesn't exist. God's dead or God doesn't exist. And if you do away with the creator, then you have to come up with an explanation for what we call the creation. So what have they done? They've gotten rid of God, and the explanation is everything came from nothing through a big bang 12 billion years ago. And we'll show you next time how specific they are about this. You would think they were standing there when it happened. The detail they give in their science publications, absolutely amazing. But when you do away with the theistic worldview, you have to embrace the naturalistic worldview, which is everything came about through natural processes without any divine input. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But I want you to understand something. Evolution did not start by scientists looking at evidence and coming up with a theory based on facts. I'm going to tell you where it really started. If you study Darwin and uh, Lyell, who preceded him, um, you will discover that much of this came about simply because man didn't want to have to answer to a holy God. And he wanted to, to come up with another explanation for the existence of everything, which would do away with God, do away with the reality of judgment. And that's what evolution really is all about. Don't let anybody fool you. In fact, pastor and author John MacArthur said, and I quote, he said, to put it simply, evolution was invented in order to eliminate the God of Genesis and thereby to oust the lawgiver and obliterate the inviolability of his law. Evolution is simply the latest means our fallen races devised in order to suppress our innate knowledge uh, and the biblical testimony that there is a God and that we are accountable to him quoting Romans 1, verse 28. MacArthur says, By embracing evolution, modern society aims to do away with morality, responsibility, and guilt. Society has embraced evolution with such enthusiasm because people imagine that it, that it eliminates the judge and leaves them free to do whatever they want without guilt and without consequences, end quote. Well, that's what they think, but a day of judgment's coming. And they will all stand before God and give an account. But these two different worldviews, guys, theism and naturalism, inevitably lead to two entirely different ways of looking at life and living your life, as you can imagine. See, many people who have embraced the naturalistic worldview don't realize the implications and even the ramifications it has had on their lives and on our society in general. I mean, if there is no God... If man is just a cosmic accident, the result of countless genetic mutations, then there is no purpose or ultimate value to life. And listen, there is no afterlife. And this leads to a philosophy of life that says, or that is very nihilistic and hedonistic, a philosophy rooted in the motto, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. Now we see that plastered across television ads and billboards and that's the mentality. This is it, okay? There's nothing after this. So you might as well eat, drink, 
be merry, party, satisfy all your physical desires and so on. Because that's all that life's all about. I mean, that's it. That's the whole purpose of life. Because when you die, it's all done. You know, there are some honest evolutionists. And one of them, Dr. George Marsden, who is an evolutionist, said, and I quote, speaking of the ramifications of the naturalistic worldview on culture, listen to what he said. He said, creation scientists are correct in perceiving that in modern culture, evolution often involves far more than biology. Sure, there's a whole mindset here. The basic ideologies of our civilization, including its entire moral structure, are at risk. Evolution is sometimes the key mythological element in a philosophy that functions as a virtual religion, end quote. And don't let anybody kid you otherwise. They will tell you that you Christians, you're creationists. That's religion. We are scientists. We deal with fact. Baloney. Baloney. Yes, we are creationists. And yes, as creationists, there is definitely an element of faith that goes into that. Because we can't prove the existence of God with 100% certainty. Now, we believe it because the evidence points in that direction. But don't let them fool you into thinking that, you know, that their belief in naturalism is pure science or based on fact. Naturalism is also rooted in a faith. It's a faith system, I should say, that they have put their faith in. Since nobody was there to see the Big Bang or to see evolution taking place, they believe it by faith, just like we believe creationism by faith. Now, the question is, which worldview, which philosophy of life has the most evidence to back it up? And I think you will see creationism by far. And we'll talk about that as we go through the study. But listen, Marsden says that, you know what, the uh, implications and ramifications of evolution goes far beyond biology. It affects culture at a very deep and profound level. Listen, if you remove God from society, because that's what evolution does, that's what naturalism does, if you remove God from society and you substitute evolution as God, well, you remove the uniqueness of man from the animal kingdom. The Bible says that man was made in the image of God. But if there is no God, then man could not have been made in the image of God and is therefore no different from any other animal that evolved on this planet. And guys, this is the doctrine that has become the foundational teaching in all Western culture. But listen, if we teach our kids they came from animals, well, it shouldn't surprise us when they then act like animals. I mean, we see kids growing up in our society without God, without morals, who place little or no value on human life. Chicago is a war zone. The summer hasn't even come yet. And already we are breaking records for people getting shot and killed in the city of Chicago. Gangs have taken over the streets and fight each other over drug turf, firing at each other in the open streets, killing innocent people, many of them children, with little or no regard. They laugh about it. You see these uh, on, the, on the internet, you see these people playing these knockout games. People have died. Walk up to a person that's just walking by and all of a sudden they cold cock this person. Hit them so hard in the jaw and not just men, they're hitting women too. I saw one poor guy who was walking along coming home from work it looked like and this was caught on a video camera and some kid in the crowd, of course they were hiding him as they were walking towards this guy and all of a sudden he steps out, 
hits this guy so hard he knocked him out cold, he falls flat on his face, hits his head on the curb, dies. It's a game. It's a game. Because life is a joke. It's not taken seriously anymore. We see kids bringing guns to school and killing their classmates simply because they didn't like the way someone looked at them or because they didn't like the way someone talked to them or about them on, we'll say, Facebook. Just a couple days ago, a 14-year-old girl had a little confrontation with another girl on Facebook, so the one young lady brings a gun to school and shoots and kills the other one. 14 years old. But what do we expect? What do we expect? From the time these kids have entered into kindergarten, they have been taught nonstop a humanistic, naturalistic worldview, a philosophy of life void of God where they have been taught that they evolved from animals, a worldview where everything came about by chance and accidents and where there is no purpose for life, no life to come, and no God to answer to. And so what do you think is going to be the result? When you begin to push that into kids, into their thinking, and force it into their, and where it becomes their worldview, there's no purpose to life, there's no life to come, there's no God to answer to, you're going to want to take all you can for yourself, no matter what the cost, because it's all about me. All this life is... It's, just, it's all about my happiness. You see, any philosophy of life that's based on the idea of the survival of the fittest, the strong eliminating the weak as the basic means of evolving from lower forms of life into higher forms of life, if that's, if that's your ideology that's governing man's thinking, shaping his worldview, and then guess what? It's going to produce a lot of evil consequences. And it has. It has. But you know what? If evolution is true, and we're just animals that have evolved higher than other species of animals in the animal kingdom, then this is the way to live. If this is true, if evolution is true, and it's all about the strong surviving and eliminating the weak so the strong can prosper even more, I mean, why should we bother helping the weak, the handicapped, the elderly, and the sick? I mean, let's just do away with them. Let's embrace infanticide and euthanasia. I mean, why keep these people around if they're just keeping the rest of us down by draining resources away from those of us who are productive? Resources that could help us become even stronger and more productive. I mean, if evolution is true, then listen, Hitler was right. Hitler was a big fan of Charles Darwin. Do you realize that? And a big proponent of evolution. He tried to hasten the process of evolution on human beings and bring about a master race by exterminating all those whom he considered genetically inferior and less evolved. Again, the strong killing the weak, his own version of natural selection. And you know what? If evolution is true, then who can argue with him? Who can argue with him? But let me ask you this. Where does compassion and mercy come from? The evolutionists would say, well, they evolved as we evolved. Think again. Evolution doesn't produce compassion and mercy. Because evolution is based on the survival of the fittest, the strong preying on the weak. If the strong start showing mercy to the weak, it would undermine the very foundation upon which evolution is built, if it were true. I mean, why is it when a tsunami or an earthquake or a plague of some kind hits some third world country and hundreds, if not thousands of people are affected, why does the rest of the world mobilize? Why does the rest of mankind send 
volunteers and workers and food and medicines over there to help these people. I mean, why do we worry if a baby is born four or five months premature? Why do we spend thousands of dollars keeping that baby alive? I mean, it's not a productive member of society yet. It's a liability. Just let it die. It's weak. It can't take care of itself. Just let it die. Why do we do it? Because life is precious. All life. All life. And why do we believe that life is precious? Because we have been made. Listen to me. We have been made in the image of God, who is a merciful and compassionate God, who created us and put the sanctity of life in our hearts. Folks, there is no mercy and compassion in a jungle. There is only survival of the fittest. Man is unique, and he's unique because our Creator made us unique. Look, it only man has the capacity to reflect the glory of his Creator in the way of love and compassion and mercy and kindness. The only explanation, guys, for morality is the existence of God, who is a moral God, and who made us in his image and put his moral laws into our hearts. It's the only explanation for this. And guys, creationism is the only thing that answers the question of origins and makes sense of life. It's the only thing that answers all the questions of life. Well, there are questions that even those of us who believe in a creator God, you know, he's so far above us that he does things at times we don't understand. We have questions. Job had questions. Job was a godly man. And I love how God dealt with that situation. At the end of Job, at the end of the book of Job, God appears to Job. Because Job was throwing out all kinds of questions. So if God is so good, why this? God is so wonderful, you know, he's so wise, and blah, 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 you know, and I wish I was dead. Be, I'd have peace. And God appeared to him at one point. He said, who is this who's talking about things he knows, knows nothing about? Have you been past the gates of hell, Job? Do you know what's down there? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the universe and I created the stars the way I did and I did all the things I did in the animal kingdom? He begins to name all the different species that he created. Well, not all of them, but he, he, he names many of them. Do you know why I made this species of animal like this with these qualities and so on? You know, and God is laying this whole thing out to Job. And Job is just sitting there quiet, red-faced, no doubt. And at the end, Job says, you know what? I think I was talking too much. Lord, I'm sorry. I was shooting my mouth off about things. But here's what God did. God did not answer all of Job's whys. Because you know what? There's always going to be another why, isn't there? What God did was point Job to himself and say, look, you're not going to understand all the whys of life. Because I am so much bigger than you, Job. I mean, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts higher than your ways and your thoughts. He told that to Isaiah, but I'm bringing it over. <laughs> it still applies, okay? <laughs> but the lesson is, look, we don't have to know all the whys of life if we know God. If we trust him, that he is a good and gracious and powerful and mighty God who does love us, even though our circumstances sometimes don't always indicate that. He does love us. But to me, creationism is the only thing that answers the deepest questions of life. We have a purpose. 
we were made by God for a purpose. And there is a life after this life. And there is a time when all mankind will stand before God and give an account for the life that they've lived on the earth. That's why this very first verse in the book of Genesis is so important. It doesn't just introduce the book of Genesis. It becomes the foundation for understanding and living our lives on the earth. Without in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you know what you got left? In the beginning, nothing. And even though we have something, it's still nothing. Because there's no purpose in it all. We're just a cosmic accident. As Solomon said, if there's no God, then vanity, vanity, all is emptiness and vanity. Without the first verse in the Bible, life is nothing more than a meaningless exercise in futility. Isn't it wonderful that we can point to the Bible, the very first verse, and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that becomes the basis for our whole worldview, the way we look at life, the way we live our lives. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think about. So, God willing, next time, we'll look at that again a little bit and try to move on. We will, of course, take our time with the first chapter, and then we will, of course, begin to move a little more quickly. But uh, very large study. Keep it in prayer. And may God bless it as we seek to know him better through this book. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. Father, we thank you that even though man blew it in a beautiful garden paradise, you did not abandon man. You did not forsake us. You gave us a promise right there in the garden that someday a redeemer was going to come who would crush the serpent's head and bring to us new life and a world that would no longer be subject to sin and the curse, a place where we would have eternal glory, eternal bliss and happiness. And Lord, we look forward to that day. But give us grace, Lord, as we study your word here in this book, that we would understand it, that we would apply it into our lives, many, many implications and ramifications from this book. Give us the grace, Lord, to extract from it every ounce of nourishment that we might live our lives in a way that pleases you, a life that truly says, in the beginning, my Creator made me. And I'm going to live for Him with my whole heart, and I'm going to give to Him my whole life. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in your precious Son's name. Amen.